Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. I wanted to start with this quote. This is one of the quotes that I have been using for some reason in the last few months. It keeps coming back, and this is the Buddha's quote about the challenges of the Dharma, which many of you have heard before. And his quote about the challenge of the Dharma goes like this. This Dharma that I have realized is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced only by the wise. The Dharma that I have realized is profound, hard to see, and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced only by the wise. I like this quote because whenever I get frustrated (laughs) with the Dharma, I can remind myself that the Buddha kind of told me in the beginning that it was going to be frustrating and challenging. So... We're in good company. The Buddha understood that his teachings were challenging, and I think it's important for us to remember that whenever we get stuck along the way. Let's just review some of these take-home points for the last month. I wanted to remind us that there are general challenges as meditators. When we come to the Dharma, We can expect to be challenged. The Buddha talked about the Dharma as overturning our value systems, reorienting what we call happiness and suffering, and inviting us to live a different kind of life, one of contemplation, one of simplicity, one of non-harm, and one of attention, (laughs) which is so challenging to be attentive, right? To be mindful is so challenging. It seems so simple. But it isn't. It's challenging to be present and mindful moment to moment. So we know going in that we're in for a ride. It's going to be a grand adventure. And if we're going to walk the path of the Dharma, we really must be up for the adventure. Where we get stuck, oftentimes, is when we're looking for quick answers, shortcuts to healing, when we ask the Dharma to help us with particular specifics in our life, like mental health issues or insomnia or uh, relaxation and things like this. When we try to get the Dharma to cure something quickly, or we use the Dharma as some kind of emergency medicine, so to speak, when we approach the Dharma with that kind of intention, it tends to fall short of our expectations. And we tend to be disappointed, and we either get frustrated or we give up. It is important, and I'll go into this in a little bit of detail in a bit, it is important to remember what the Dharma is and what it promises. This is such a key to making sure that the path feels supportive and energetically congruent with what we're doing, right? The path gets really bumpy if we don't know what path we're on and where the path is actually going. One of the challenges we face 
as Dharma practitioners, as meditators, is that it's easy to forget what the idea is behind dukkha, suffering, and the freedom of happiness that the Buddha promises. We always have to remember that the freedom that we're talking about is not physical pain, it's not freedom from outside circumstances, it's freedom from within. It is an internal, personal liberation. What we do in the Dharma is that we focus on making the inner world free from suffering so we can then show up in the outer world and make the outer world a better place. If we look to the Dharma to make the outer world better, again, it tends to fall short. It tends to feel selfish and constricted and oftentimes maybe even naive or infantile, if you will, in its aspiration of freedom. So when we pursue the path, we have to remember that it's an inward journey. It's our personal journey inward to self-discovery, to discovering in our hearts and minds where happiness truly lies. And with that insight into that happiness, we then get to show up in the world as transformative creatures. We get to show up in the world with generosity and kindness and love. And our space in the world then transforms others, then transforms systems, and then transforms futures for us and all beings. If we can keep our focus on that and remember that when the path gets rough and challenging, it's much easier to course correct. So many times when like students come to me for Dharma consultations or they're getting stuck in some way, oftentimes the stuckness has to do with a general misunderstanding of what the path actually is. What is the map? And what are we supposed to be doing? And where is this path going? Once we orient correctly to the Dharma, a lot of those missteps, a lot of those misunderstandings, and a lot of our frustration will fall away. <laughs> now, our frustration with the wandering mind will probably not go away anytime soon. But the other kinds of frustrations that can arise from the practice will decrease if we orient ourselves to the practice correctly. One of the things we talked about a few weeks ago was the question of whether the path is selfish. We explored this a little bit. And what we talked about was the, the healthy benefit of reframing the path, reframing the path as being self-centered, but not selfish. Self-centered in that we have to do the work. Self-centered in that we have to walk it. And self-centered in that we go inward when we're sitting. But it is not selfish in the sense that we are practicing for our own healing and with the highest aspiration of all beings to be free. And that self-centered orientation inward can only be successful ultimately if we're loving and we're kind and we're caring to everyone around us. Even if we do all the right steps and we go inward and we're with the breath and we're doing jhanas and we're practicing loving kindness in our meditation, if we step off the cushion and do not show up with kindness and generosity and we don't keep our precepts and those kinds of things, the path is not something that will be successful for us. So we can acknowledge the self-centered necessity of turning inward and away from others but that inwardness 
results in us being outwardly connected if it's done properly. So again, we could be really frustrated. We could see the Dharma as selfish and naive until we really understand that the self-centered orientation results in an outward-oriented heart, a heart that's unbounded and expands outward towards others to connect and to heal and to care for everyone that is suffering. The compassion that arises from the self-centered orientation is selfless. It is a feeling that when we see other people suffering, we want to help. Compassion is suffering with. It is leaning in towards other people's suffering in an effort to decrease it. So we do end up serving others and sharing our lives with others. But we do this with the first step of turning inward, turning away from others into ourselves to really go deep into the heart of what makes us as individuals suffer, what makes our hearts contract, what makes our wounds lasting or the illusion that the wound is lasting, and what we can do about it, what we can do through our efforts to heal and awaken. So we reframed that selfishness to be just a self-centered orientation that leads to deep personal connection and ultimately a connection with others. Another thing we talked about last week specifically was the foundation of Dharma as a path of nonviolence and non-harm. The highest aspiration the Buddha talked about was essentially non-harm, right? Non-harm to ourselves and non-harm to others. And the Buddha was clear, if we're doing harm, we're not doing the Dharma. So we have to commit to a way of life that is non-harming, with our highest aspiration to be as non-harming as possible. And yet, as we talked about last week, the Buddha does remind us that we are beings living in a world living in families and cultures and political realms, economic realms, and that this highest aspiration of non-harm is always going to be tempered by the pragmatism of our situation. That we use this guidepost of non-violence, this ahimsa, in order to do the best we can moment to moment, realizing that some moments we're not going to be able to live up to the expectation. But instead of getting down on ourselves and feeling guilty and bad, we just keep going. We keep trying to improve the commitment to living an ethical and immoral life. Not immoral, amoral. <laughs> amoral life. <laughs> and we, we do this with mindfulness, with intention, with persistence. And we realize that this path, what makes the ethical part of the path difficult for us and challenging for us, is when we expect perfection out the gate. If we start practicing the Dharma and we look at the precepts and we look at these aspirations of these huge lofty ambitions and we think, oh gosh, I will never be able to do that or that's just, I'm not even in the ballpark of those precepts, we can get down on ourselves. We can become self-critical. We can become discouraged. We can just feel like the path is way too enormous has too high expectations or ideals, and then we get frustrated, and we're always feeling like we're behind or we're misstepping in some way. But when we realize that the Buddha's invitation to an ethical way of life, a life of non-harm, is an invitation to self-exploration. It is an invitation to look within and to grow and to change and to develop over time. 
The expectation is not perfection when you step onto the cushion. So when we can give ourselves that leeway and we can give ourselves that space to accept and to heal and to love, then keeping our precepts becomes an adventure in self-discovery, which heals ourselves and heals others rather than a shaming, a blaming, and sort of a toxic, self-deprecating attitude towards to ourselves or sometimes towards others even. So we begin to see that struggling with the precepts decreases quite a bit when we understand what the Buddha is actually asking. When we orient to the path correctly, a lot of our missteps can be transcended. There are some guideposts that I wanted to reiterate and clarify. As I said earlier, no matter what the challenge in the Dharma, if we're clear about the goal and we're clear about the path, a lot of stuff resolves on its own. And you can imagine it this way. If you have a path that leads to a meadow, say, uh, that has wildflowers, and you have another path that leads to a pond, say, that you can swim in, or you have another path that leads to a waterfall. So you have these different paths with their different end goals. If you're walking the path and you're looking to get to the waterfall, but you end up at the meadow, there's going to be disappointment. And if you're looking to get to the meadow, but you end up at the pond, again, there's going to be a sense of disappointment. And oftentimes in the Dharma, we begin walking the path without knowing if we're going to the waterfall or the pond or the meadow. We don't really know where we're going or we think we know where we're going. And when we don't end up in the place that we think we're supposed to be, there's a sense of failure. There's a sense of feeling futile in our practice or feeling like, oh, like everyone else is a great meditator, but I can't meditate. There's all this stuff that can happen if we don't have a clear sense of what the goal is. If we don't have a sense of the spiritual framework of the path, we can easily get lost in the Dharma, and the Dharma can be unnecessarily frustrating. The path ends at your own personal freedom, and it is a freedom from suffering. It is a happiness that is unconditioned, not dependent on outside circumstances, and does not harm you or others. Remembering this and keeping it close to our hearts is really important. I always, I always love the story of Goenkaji. Uh, Goenkaji is the Burmese meditation master that many of you know of, a, a peer, you'd say, of Ruth Dennison and student of uh, Ubikin. So, and many of you know this story, but I just love it. So when Goenka goes to Ubikin to get training, Goenka has gone to him because he has migraines. And so he wants to get rid of his migraines. So he approaches Ubikin, who's this, again, grandmaster of meditation in Burma. And Goenka's like, I'd like to learn the Dharma so I can get rid of my migraines. And Ubikin says, no way, go home. I'm not going to teach you the Dharma so you can get rid of your migraines. He refuses to teach him. And Goenka, of course, is also a businessman at the time, like, a, like an international business guy, and is all confused and frustrated by this guy who will not teach him the Dharma because he's been told that meditation is great for headaches. So what you see here is Ubikin trying to show Goenka right off the bat 
you need to know where this path goes if you're going to walk it. Otherwise, it's just going to get you lost, confused, and frustrated. And so Goenka agrees reluctantly, and on his first meditation retreat with Ubikin, he tries to leave the retreat. He tries to sneak off the retreat in the middle of the night because he's so frustrated by the meditation practice. And of course, Goenka becomes one of the most famous meditation teachers of this last century. Uh, but you see in the beginning that Ubikin was bold enough to tell Goenka, you should probably know where this path goes if you're going to walk it. Goenka wanted a meadow and Ubikin wanted to take him to the waterfall. And he was very clear that it would have been not very helpful for Goenka to walk in that way. If we use the Dharma to achieve something that it is not designed for, we will create more suffering for ourselves. It will let us down. It will feel inadequate and there will be personal frustration. If we try to use the Dharma as a substitute for therapy, it can exacerbate mental health symptoms. If we use the Dharma as a foundation or platform for a specific type of political orientation or social change, the Dharma will appear very selfish. If we look at the Dharma and we ask it to just be a path of stress reduction, or we use mindfulness to just enjoy sensual pleasures more, then there's going to be parts of the path that seem crazy and extreme. So if we don't understand the context, our minds will not be able to be congruent with the steps that we're taking. So it's very important. This is why, if you, I'm sure you remember at least some point in my teachings and at least at one point in my talks, I always ask you to reflect, what are you looking to get out of the Dharma? Why are you here? What is your journey? How do you want to show up in the world? The reason I ask that is so you can reflect on whether or not that is the path you are actually walking and if the Dharma is actually successfully serving that need. It's important to remind ourselves what we're doing, where we're going, and why we're doing it. It can help with a huge, it can help preventing a huge amount of frustration and discontent on the path. Earlier on in my uh, meditation, I got, it was probably 10 years in. I've been sitting now for like 27 years. So it's probably 10 years in. I had approached meditation early on for anxiety. And although it helped with anxiety, it didn't cure it as quickly or ever really in the way I wanted. So I got really, really frustrated. I got really angry actually at my teacher at the time because I was like, this isn't working. Like I'm doing all this meditation and it's not curing my anxiety. Of course, my teacher laughed at the, at the time um, and quickly course corrected what the goal of the Dharma actually was. And once I course corrected, not only did it help with my anxiety more, I got so much more out of the Dharma when I stopped trying to force the Dharma into a treatment plan for a very particular personal ailment. When I opened it up to be a exploration of the root of all suffering within myself, suddenly all kinds of parts of my life saw a decrease in suffering. And yes, after all these years, I still struggle with anxiety, but hardly as much as I did before. And I don't know how I would manage it without such incredible skills that I've acquired through meditation. But when I was able to refocus my practice on the spiritual journey, it, it opened up a significant doorway, I guess you could say, to happiness 
and contentment and ease that I didn't think was possible. I was looking in the wrong place and using a technique to do the wrong thing, so to speak. So it helps to be able to focus in this way. So if we find ourselves tripping over our feet, so to speak, on the path, if we find ourselves frustrated, we always must start by checking in with this guidepost and ask ourselves, am I on the path, the actual path, and am I walking in the direction that I need to walk to be free? The other guidepost that's hugely helpful is just to remember that there's work to be done. I always think, I always think when I think of the Dharma and I think of myself as a meditator, I sort of think of like those memes where, you know, the child's in the backseat of the car and they're always saying, are we there yet? That's how I feel like as a meditator. I feel like the Dharma is the parents in the front seat and the meditator is me in the back being like, where, when are we going to get to enlightenment? We've been driving for like six hours. Like, are we there yet? I feel like I'm constantly asking the Dharma, when is enlightenment coming? Like, I'm, I'm getting impatient now. I really want to arrive. And so <laughs> I always think of this kind of agitation and impatience that I get of like, I feel like I should be enlightened by now. The Dharma is failing me because I'm not enlightened. So we have to remember that there's work to be done. And the Buddha's discovery, as he describes it, is that we get awakened through our own efforts. And the Buddha described this as great news. It was great news because if awakening comes through our efforts, that means it's not a result of luck. It's not result of a deity or some birthright in the sense that you were you are very special or you're a superhero and you're the one that gets to be enlightened. The idea that we can get awakened from our own efforts was a celebration on behalf of the Buddha. He was basically saying, we can all do this. This is great news. The good news is we can do the work and we can become awakened. It's not random. It's not accidental. It's not just for a particular kind of person or a person in a particular, I don't know, stage in life or someone with a particular job like the Buddha didn't discover that only dentists could be enlightened or whatever, you know, however you want to think about it. We can all do this, right? Uh, but it has to be done from our, from our own efforts. So it's kind of good news, bad news, right? The good news is enlightenment comes from our own efforts. And the bad news is enlightenment comes from our own efforts. We have to do the work. We have to keep driving, walking, running, swimming. We have to keep moving forward on the path. And it's only going to happen when it's going to happen. But we have to continue to do the work. We cannot sit in the back seat and ask the Dharma to do the work for us. Because as we know, the mind will not mind itself, right? Awareness will not quiet itself. We have to put in effort and we have to be super, super patient with this process. So anytime you get the impatience, just remember that the awakening comes from your own efforts and you just have to keep walking patiently, persistency, with ardent and alert, mindful orientation. That is the Buddha's instruction. Ardent, alert, and mindful. That's how we move forward. We have to remember that because this takes effort, that the practice takes time and commitment. So we have to always look back. If you're not getting the results from the practice that you think you should be getting, you always have to ask yourself, how much am I practicing? How often am I sitting? And what really helped me with this was thinking of this. I used to be a music teacher, different life now, um, and used to teach piano lessons. And 
you know, people often, students often ask, well, how much do I need to practice? And my answer is always, well, how much do you want to learn? <laughs> what do you want to play? Do you want to play Bach or do you want to play chopsticks? It depends on what you want to play and how good of a piano player you would like to be. So if you think about the mindfulness and you think about meditation, ask yourself this. If someone was going to hand you a guitar and say, I want you to learn this guitar, if you practice that guitar a few times a month, how quickly would you learn to play that guitar? How good would you be? If you practiced a couple times a week for five minutes, what do you think would happen? 10 minutes every day, 20 minutes a day? Think to yourself, how much practice, daily practice of an instrument would you have to do regularly to feel kind of competent with playing the guitar? Think of meditation the same way, right? How often are you playing? Are you playing the instrument of your own consciousness. How much are you practicing? So if you're ever in that space where you're frustrated, and we all get frustrated, and we all feel impatient, like the path isn't moving fast enough, we got to remind ourselves, am I actually practicing? Am I walking the path? How often am I sitting? How am I applying it to daily life? When you look at it, look at it in those ways, it really helps us to get on track quite quickly. My One of my favorite quotes... Um, I can't remember who it was, but it was a Thai forest monastic, and I was at a retreat, and the monk said, whenever a Western uh, meditator asks me, he said something like this, when, whenever a Western meditator asks me, how much do I have to meditate, most of the time what they're actually asking is, how much can I get away with? How little do I have to practice to get to get enlightened? And that totally reminds me of myself because I've asked that same question. It's like, can I get enlightened if I if I just do this, or can I get enlightened if I just do that? And can I cut out A, B, and C and still still make the grade? Can I still get on the team? So you have to be careful about that voice in your head that gets too impatient and wants it quick and wants to get enlightened overnight uh, because you got to put in the work. And that's the good news and the bad news of the path. Another guidepost that I just wanted to say, this is something I've learned over a course of years now. The Dharma may not be for everybody, and it might not be for everybody at every point in their life. Meaning there might be a point in your life where you just really thrive with the practice, and it really just goes very well. And there might be other points in your life where it's a struggle and a challenge, and maybe some days just not the right medicine for what you need. And that's okay. We have to keep in touch with our own heart, right? It's our path. It's our own inner journey. We can go at whatever speed uh, to whatever depth is comfortable for us here and now at this point in our life. But what I have noticed is there are certain characteristics of students who seem to be very successful in the Dharma. And I wanted to list off these characteristics because I see these time and time again with students. And if these characteristics are latent in you, which they're latent in all of us, you can use the Dharma itself to cultivate the characteristics because any one of us can experience the liberation. So one of the things that really allows for success in the Dharma is you have to be curious. You have to be curious about who you are and what this whole thing is and what the world really is. If you're not interested in what you are at the deepest level, if you're not curious about what goes on in the deepest reaches of your heart and mind, then meditation is going to be really boring. 
So meditation is an exploration. So it's kind of like, <laughs> I kind of see it like this. <laughs> meditation is like going to Disneyland and walking in the door, but there aren't any rides. Like you're the amusement. You are the ride. So when you go within, you need to be curious and interested on what's happening because that's all the experience actually is. Being mindful of what is so in the present moment. So if you're not interested, cultivating a sense of interest in what's going on inside really makes for a successful meditator on this path. You have to be interested, curious, investigative. The other thing is, is this is a path of personal transformation. So what I notice is people who enjoy actively learning and growing and changing and actually enjoy the experience of personal development, watching themselves grow, that's what makes meditation fun for a lot of us is that we get new things that we discover. We see parts of ourselves that are revealed that we never even knew were there. And that excites us. It's, ooh, look at that. Like, I didn't know there was that part of myself there. I would like to change that. Or, oh, look, I'm more compassionate than I thought I was. So you have to be curious and interested and really enjoy growing, learning, and changing. Because the path is one of personal transformation. And what makes it exciting in the long run is being able to feel that sense of growth inside. To really feel yourself blossom as a human being. That is something I notice with students. Students who really enjoy that tend to really get deep experiences in their practice. Another aspect of this is suffering. Students who come to the path with a tangible, let's see how to put this. Students who come to the path, yeah, with a tangible awareness of their own suffering tend to really get a lot out of meditation. If you're in touch with that wound, with that discontent, with that dis-ease within yourself, then when you start meditating, you really feel the results. If you come to the path and your life is maybe material, materially speaking, like really well, you haven't had a lot of trauma, you're not very stressed, and this is kind of rare for a human being, but let's just say, if you come to the path and you're kind of like, oh, life is good, I think I'll learn to meditate, Meditation might be kind of boring. So the, what I find is that if you stick with meditation long enough, you will eventually uncover the suffering. The dukkha is in there. But coming to meditation and honoring the fact that your life is not perfect and things aren't necessarily going well and you would like to have healing in your life and being honest about that, that is part of the key for the Dharma to work well because it's a path out of suffering. I was on a, I met someone when I was on several retreats in California once, and this person did meditation retreat after meditation retreat after meditation retreat, and they didn't have really any experience. Like it was like they weren't actually experiencing the retreat. And what they had told me, and this was their opinion, they said, you know, my life is just so good. Like I've got no worries, no stresses. I, you know, I came from a well-adjusted home, like everything is just awesome. And, and that reminded me that like, if you come to the path and you can't see your own suffering and you're not in touch with your own suffering, and maybe you're not ready to see it because we all have dukkha somewhere in there, there's dukkha. If we're not in touch with it and present with it, when we begin to walk, 
meditation can be kind of boring and annoying and can seem like it's not worth anything. So remember to be present with your suffering when you're going through this, because that's why we're here, to end the suffering. In light of that, a few other traits I just wanted to mention was that in order to do this, we have to have patience, persistence, and courage. Robert Beattie likes to say that most students stop meditating when meditation starts working. Because when meditation really starts working, that's when it starts to reveal the parts of ourselves that we have turned away from, the parts of ourselves that we don't want to see. When the meditation starts being filled with discontent and agitation and craving and aversion and emotional storms, that's when we're like, woo, yeah, I don't want to do that. Why would I sit down in meditation to experience all these hindrances? Like, what is the point of that? Of course, the point is to get over them, but we have to have the courage to face ourselves. We really have to be authentic and we can develop this authenticity over time because human beings, you know, we want to distract. We want to like turn away from things we don't want to see. And that's totally understandable. But there has to be a part of us when we begin to meditate that's willing to be honest and courageous enough to look into ourselves and really see deeply where we've got those fissures, those internal parts of ourselves that we would like to make whole. And if we're not ready to honestly face those, and if we haven't yet gained the courage to do so, when you go into the meditation, your mind is going to do a lot more wandering. It's just going to be really uncomfortable for long periods of time. We have to be willing to look at the hindrances and the discontent of the practice as part of the path and have the courage and the patience and the persistence to be with it, to hold the discomfort in awareness. That is something we have to have the courage to do. Last thing I wanted to say. The most successful students that I see in the Dharma are those who take the challenges of the Dharma and look upon them as opportunities for awakening. One of the greatest things we can do in the Dharma is learn that dukkha is a way out, that when we can get in touch with the suffering, that's the opportunity for healing. And we begin to, as I like to say, lean into it. We're like, ooh, look, this is uncomfortable. I'm going to lean into that and see if I can use it as a doorway for presence. Let me lean into this and see if I can use it to awaken my heart. So the most successful students in my experience are students who are willing to lean in to the discomfort, who are willing to look at challenges as opportunities rather than something to turn away from. Now, even if you're not like that when you start, if you practice with sincerity, you, the discomfort is going to arise eventually, no matter what. So you can still have that experience, even if it's not with you in the beginning. And again, these dispositions, these heart-mind qualities that I'm mentioning can be cultivated and we can use the practice to strengthen them and draw them out of us and to enhance them in ourselves. But if you have them to begin with, and you can remind yourself that by tapping into them and bringing them into aliveness moment to moment, you will have such a greater experience in the Dharma, such a deeper sense of peace and well-being will arise if you can ground yourself in that need to be courage, courageous, authentic, patient, and persistent with your experience. And one last reminder of metaphor, one of my favorites. 
It's from Goenkaji, and Goenkaji talks about students getting frustrated on the path, and he compares it to a line that we draw in water, a line that we draw in sand, and a line that we draw in stone. And I just love this metaphor, and I always remind myself of it. <laughs> in fact, I've been using the metaphor for so long that sometimes Molly will remind me of the metaphor when I'm stuck and getting frustrated. And I, I feel like there's something in me that's not uh, giving way. She'll remind me that things are carved in stone. <laughs> stone. And then I rue the day I ever said that metaphor out loud. Um, so this is how the metaphor goes. You draw a line in water and almost as soon as you draw the line in water, the water moves and the line vanishes. As soon as you're drawing the line in water, some of our habits, some of our suffering is like that. It's immediate. We suffer, it leaves. It's a momentary suffering. Some of our suffering is like drawing a line in sand. We draw the line in the sand, and maybe it takes a while for the wind to blow or someone to walk over the line, but it's there for a while, and it usually has to go over time and perhaps with some intentionality. And then some of our dukkha is like a line chiseled in stone. It takes years of grinding the stone down. So much patience, so much effort, so much persistence. We have to grind and grind and grind until that line is gone. The Dharma contains all three of those types of suffering and all three of those timelines. So no matter what we're experiencing moment to moment in the Dharma, we just remember Obstacles are part of the path. We walk, we accept, and we meet each moment open-hearted with a patience and a determination to be free from suffering, knowing that we can be free, having confidence that that freedom is possible, and reminding ourselves that every time we show up with compassion and kindness and generosity and love, we're not only changing ourselves, but we're changing the world, that we are doing ourselves a service and we're doing the world of service, and it is a worthy journey to take. And coming week to week as we do, we can support each other and care for each other as we all work on these lines in water, sand, and stone. And some days, some of us are going to deal be dealing with the sand, and some of us are going to be dealing with the stone. And that's just the way the path goes. But we can be grateful in a night like this where we've got 18, 20 people coming together who are saying, hey, this is worth it. It's worth it to come together to practice. It's worth it to come together and learn and to love and care for each other. We could be doing anything this evening, but here we are walking the path and it's something to be grateful and excited for. So I think that's my overview of the last few weeks. This is my overview. My wish for us all is that we can approach this with authenticity, that we really can be inspired by this practice and continue to support each other in it. And we can all be safe and well along the way. And let's end on time tonight. I really appreciate you guys being in my life in this way. Thank you so much for coming each week. It never gets old. I see all your faces and I'm like, oh my gosh, look, people showed up again. <laughs> it's always awesome. I love spending time with you. Thank you so much for donating your hearts and minds to this incredible path. And thank you for supporting me in my practice because coming here and doing this with you gives my life so much meaning and my practice so much meaning. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it.
Let us do some meta. Let us fall back into presence for a few minutes before we close. Let's remind ourselves of our highest aspiration, that through our own practice all beings may be free. Let's return to body. Take a long, slow, deep breath. In through the nose and out through the mouth, relaxing into the body on the exhale. Touch down on sitting body. Return to awareness of breathing body. Notice the energy in the body, in the breath. Notice if there is a sense of expansion or contraction, presence or distraction. Just noticing. Breathing in, noticing this moment. Breathing out, noticing this moment. The only place that life occurs. Right here in present moment awareness. With this body held gently in awareness. With this mind and heart. Present, ardent, alert, at ease. We call to the altar of our hearts the highest aspiration. That is freedom from suffering for all beings. We focus on ourselves and our practice so we may successfully focus on others. We balance the inward journey with outward compassion. We turn inward for self-care so we can walk in the world as kind, generous, loving beings. We turn inward to turn outward. We heal ourselves so with each breath with each waking moment, we radiate love and compassion to all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings know true joy, true love, true compassion in this lifetime. May our fellow beings and the planet itself be free from harm. Be safe from hurt, be cared for, be at ease. May we be contributors to that healing, to that awakening. Let us conclude tonight with a wish for all beings, asking ourselves in this moment 
If we could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what would that highest aspiration be? With each breath in, each breath out, wish that thought for all beings. Thank you, my friends. Be safe, be well, be at peace. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.